Welcome in uh, to the Wednesday Bible study. So thankful that you are with us again today. And um, a couple of programming notes as we start the Wednesday Bible study. Uh, you have to pardon me having a hat on today. Uh, when we're recording this, we've been out uh, doing a show on location uh, with the Rick and Bubba Show. I'm co-host of the Rick and Bubba Show. I'm Rick Burgess, also director for themanchurch.com. And boy, we've been out on the road and seen so many churches implementing the men's discipleship strategy, getting tremendous feedback on this from the people that have been doing it uh, for, you know, as much as uh, finishing the, the complete 40 weeks of the first uh, curriculum or, you know, somewhere in between, some people 10 weeks in, uh, and the feedback just keeps pouring in. And as predicted, a lot of the feedback the church is getting is actually coming from the women of the church who are thanking the churches that are doing this discipleship strategy because they're seeing the change in their men. Uh, and uh, if we can help you in any way, we'd love to. Uh, for those of you that are already familiar with themanchurch.com and the first 40-week curriculum that we launched in March of 2020, uh, we have a brand new 40-week curriculum uh, that is coming out this week, and I'm uh, recording this on, Mar- on May the 5th. Uh, so if you are um, uh, a few days later, it may already be out. We think it's going to be out by Friday. Uh, it is called Real Men. Uh, this takes on uh, another 40-week curriculum with me teaching 12 to 15 minutes and study guides that go uh, with the group leaders. Uh, this takes eight men of the Bible, and we do five weeks on each man. So if, if you and your group or your church has finished the first 40 weeks of the pursuit curriculum, this is now another 40-week curriculum called Real Men, uh, and it's either about to come out or if you're listening to this later in the week, it has already come out, and you can find it at themanchurch.com. Uh, also, for those men uh, that uh, are listening to this recording, uh, and you normally are here in the studio for the Bible study, we will start back in studio in June. Uh, so we've, we've made that decision. Um, uh, we probably could have done it sooner than that, but there's some underlying uh, reasons that we haven't. Uh, but uh, as of June, the first Wednesday of June, uh, we will be back in here. If you if you live in around the Birmingham area and you were accustomed uh, to coming in here on Wednesdays live uh, and watching it. Uh, we'll give you that opportunity starting again in June. So make a note of that. Uh, and then also, I will not be here next week, so there is no Wednesday Bible study on the 12th. Uh, I will be on a vacation with my wife as we celebrate our 25th anniversary, and we are going to spend a week together uh, just enjoying rest, relaxation, and tremendous food. Uh, so, uh, so we'll be back. Uh, on the uh, the nineteenth, uh, we'll start back with uh, with the Bible study. So, if you have um, the book together and you want to kind of jump into what we're doing, or you have your Bible, uh, we'll jump into uh, our session today of Knowing God by J. I. Packer. Uh, we're going to finish. Remember, last week we didn't get completely through uh, the chapter concerning adoption, so we're going to finish that today. We'll take a break a break next week, then we'll come back and we'll finish. Uh, the book uh, in just a couple of weeks once we get back. Okay, so let's open in prayer. Lord, thank you for this time together. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would bless um, our time together. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand uh, what we're walking through uh, today. Uh, uh, last week, uh, we were all just um, blown away by this concept of adoption uh, and the fact that we, uh, through redemption, have become children of God. Uh, without redemption, we have to understand that we're still children of of the world, or as your scripture says, children of the devil. Uh, so, so not all, not everyone is a child of God. Only those that have been redeemed. And help us to understand this wonderful thing you offer, uh, and apply it to our lives. And it may give us great hope. Uh, and for those of us that don't feel like we are a child of God, may it bring us under conviction for us to change that. Uh, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So we're going to finish up on the concept of adoption. And, and what adoption shows us. And when we finished last week, we had just walked up to Christian prayer, uh, and, I, and I was about to really dive into that, and then I kind of said, let's tap the brakes and hold right there. Uh, we were about eight minutes from our time being over, and I just didn't think that was enough time to really jump into this. Cause, and and, and it, there's a, a standalone message that you might be able to find uh, if, if you look, and I wish I could help you more on, on more details on on the title to search. But if you go to BurgessMinistries.com and click on listen, you'll see the Wednesday Bible study available there. And then if you go to the uh, Rick and Bubba YouTube channel that some of you are watching on right now, 
you can hit playlist and start going back through archives. But we had a standalone message one time. When I say standalone, meaning it, it wasn't part of a series. It, it is its own standalone Bible study. Uh, and if you remember, it, we, we, we talked about how to pray and how not to pray. Uh, because Scripture says, and Jesus says, you know, when you pray, don't do this, and when you pray, do that. So th- this, uh, th- this adoption concept uh, also ties into when Jesus says, this is how you pray. Uh, it, it appears in the Sermon on the Mount uh, when Jesus begins to say, this is the way you should pray under the new covenant. Uh, and, and this is what Jesus said. He says this in Matthew 6, verse 9, just what I said. This, then, is how you should pray. Now, now raise your hand if you think it's a really big deal if the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and the one and only uh, Son of the living God says, I, when you pray, I want you to pray like this, that we should pay attention. Uh, so here's what he says in, in Matthew 6, verse 9, part of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, um, I, I prayed to, uh, as Jesus always prayed to his God as Father, Abba, as we talked about in Aramaic, which is an intimate family word. Remember, I, we did talk about that last week. That's part of this adoption that's available through redemption that we can speak uh, to to God the Father in a very intimate way. Uh, and Jesus says that, uh, that, that we should say to his Father, now our Father, uh, and, and he talked about this in, in John uh, 11, verse 42. Write that down. You always hear me, he said to his Father, and he wants his disciples to know to know that as God adopted, as God's adopted children, now the same is true of us. The Father is always accessible to His children, and and God, uh, the Father, is never too preoccupied uh, to listen uh, to what we have to say. And this is the basis of Christian prayer. Uh, so, so first, two things that follow this uh, uh, prayer must not be thought of as an impersonal or mechanical term, as a technique for putting pressure on someone who otherwise may disregard you. See, think, think about what Jesus said about not praying. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. And look, we've all been there before. We've all been there before. Uh, when somebody starts a prayer, and you can tell this prayer is not about God, it's about us being impressed with how many words they can come up with and how well they can pray uh, and like Jesus says, a lot of these people are just trying to bring attention to themselves. And he goes on to say, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is from, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 7 and 8. So first of all, Jesus says, now under the new covenant, as adopted children of God, uh, this, this adoption and this redemption means you should not be doing these mechanical babbling prayers to God the Father anymore, as if you're trying to pressure uh, some this some absent father who's cold and doesn't want to hear what you have to say, and you're trying to put pressure on him or try to come up with the right words that will make him give you his attention. Jesus says that's not the way we pray anymore. I'm here to now make you right with God the Father, so you as His child can now pray to Him in an intimate way. Just talk to Him, and, and Jesus says that's the way that we pray. Under adoption, second, prayer uh, may be free and bold. We, we don't need to hesitate uh, to intimate uh, the sublime. You know, uh, the cheek of, of a child who is is not afraid to ask his parents for anything because he knows he he can completely count uh, on their love. Ask, it will be given to you. Everyone who asks receives. If you then Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give you uh, give good gifts to those who ask Him? Jesus says, "Don't be intimidated about speaking freely to God the Father if you're His child." This is in Matthew seven, uh, verses seven through eleven. He says, "Look, he he knows what you need before you ever ask. Go ahead and ask." And 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 it, and the beautiful thing is when we same thing with our earthly uh, fa- uh, parents because a lot of times the the health wealth and prosperity gospel people uh, which is heresy uh, they 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 try to take these kind of phrases from Jesus or from Scripture and they manipulate them into something that they're not. We don't go to God the Father like we have found him in a genie's bottle and we've rubbed the 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 the. The bottle, and and he comes out, and he says, "I now I grant you three wishes," and we begin to say, "Well, I tell you what, I want more money. I'd 
I'd, I'd like to I'd like to have a beautiful spouse. I'd like to have a nice house. Uh, that's not it. That's not it at all. What are the things that you as a parent, if you're a parent watching this, or me as a parent, or, or your own parents, uh, what are the things that they usually granted you when you asked them for it? Things that they wanted you to have anyway. Things that were what? In their will. Thing, things that they approved of. And, and if you asked of your parents something your parent approved of or something that the parent thought was good for you or something the parent already had planned for you to have anyway, then that parent usually would accommodate that request. But a parent does not accommodate, a, 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 like we say all the time, even in marriage. It is our job as father, I mean, as husbands to take care of our wives every need. It is not our call to, to fall all over ourselves to appease our wife Every time they have a whim, that that is not it. And so the God, the father does not look at us and say, well, if you roll around on the floor and pitch a fit and I get tired of it, I may just begrudgingly give you what you want. He's not going to give you anything nor give me anything that is not in his will or, or not what he thinks is best. But but Jesus says, when you get to know, go ahead and talk to him freely about it. And, and as a matter of fact, in John 15, that that great chapter, when we studied the gospel of John when Jesus is talking about abiding in him and that wonderful word abide, which means to remain, to act in accordance with, uh, to, uh, to agree with, he said, if we, we are in sync, he says, if you're in sync with me, and then since my father is the vine dresser, I, the vine, now make you in sync with my father. And then he says, ask whatever you ask in my name, it will be given to you. Well, what he's talking about is if we're, if we truly have the proper relationship with, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, if we have that proper relationship and we become so consumed with it and we abide in that and our relationship is, is the way it should be as an adopted child to our Heavenly Father, a co-heir uh, with, with, uh, with our Heavenly Father's Son, that you know what we start doing? We're so consumed in that relationship that we always ask what's already in His will. We begin to ask for the right thing. And he says, when you ask for the right things, my father gives them to you. Uh, and he says, this is part of, of how this adoption affects prayer. Um, so we don't deny the good gifts to our children. He said, e- e- you would be considered evil if you did that. Uh, and he says, nor will my father. But our father in heaven always answers our, our prayers in the form in which we offer them. And this is important. Listen to this. Sometimes we ask for the wrong thing. That's what I was talking about. It is God's prerogative to give good things that we have need of. And, and, and if, uh, if, if we ask for something without wisdom and they do not come under these headings, uh, God, like any good parent, reserves the right to say, no, not that. It would not be good for you, but have this instead. Remember what he said. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7 through 11. You do not deny your children good gifts. That doesn't mean you don't dis- deny your children any gift. You don't deny good gifts, nor does God. God, God, uh, you know, is just like a good parent. They, they, they never simply ignore what their children are saying, nor, nor simply disregard. Uh, rather, what, what a good parent usually does, uh, understanding the feelings of need versus the feelings of want or, or whims. Uh, but, but a good parent, what, gives the child what they should be asking for. Uh, maybe sometimes rather than what was actually requested. How many times have you done that with your children? I have. No, don't do this. I'll tell you what, though. Let me tell you what would be better than that. This is what you need to do. And if you really, if, if and this is what I, I will grant you this, and I won't grant you that. You know, I've, I've talked to my children many times when they get out on their own. Look, if you come to me, even though you're paying your own bills, and you have a, a legitimate need, something that couldn't be helped, something that came out of nowhere, not because you were irresponsible, not because you squandered your money, not because you're behaving in a way that I don't approve of, but if you had something that happened that was unfortunate, how about this? I'll, I'll help you. And you have, you have a need that you can't quite pull off yet, though you're trying to learn your way, but you've been responsible with your money, you're, you're a hard worker, you're living a life under the authority of Christ, and you just got yourself in a bind, and you had a car breakdown that you didn't think... I know some people say, well, they should have planned for it. I got you. But usually if, if you can look into the situation and say, this is not a child that is misbehaving. This is not a child that's brought an unreasonable request. This is not a child that wants me to give them something that is not for their good. 
we usually go ahead and give it. And he says God is, is the same way. But he's not going to give us our whims, but he will always give us our needs. And if we are requesting something that he deems to be good and in his will for us. So um, God you know, wants to hear these requests. Paul uh, asked the Lord Jesus graciously, remember we talked about this in, in 2 Corinthians 12, to remove his thorn in his flesh. So that was a request. Uh, Paul said, I'm going to, and he says he asked three times, I would like for this thorn in my flesh to be removed. That's what I would want. But we know uh, that, uh, that, that the Lord knew best and to and and to suggest that because Paul's prayer was answered, this this is not the the to say it was not answered would be an incorrect answer. It would be completely wrong to say that the Lord did not hear Paul's prayer and he did not answer it. As a matter of fact, he answered the prayer by saying no. Why? And then Paul turns around and says, "Oh, I know why you won't do this," which makes you wonder why Paul asked in the first place. But I guess he said, "I might as well ask." He said, you're not removing it because it's keeping me from being conceited. You, you have not removed this difficulty because it humbles me and reminds me that your grace is sufficient. Because Paul had been taken up into the third heaven. He'd seen a vision uh, that might carry a bit of arrogance with it. And what the Lord decided for Paul is that this thorn is something you need to remain. Uh, you, it remains in your flesh, and this difficulty remains because ultimately this is what's best for you because it keeps you in the proper place with me. And Paul goes on to say, because when I'm weak, that's when I'm strong because I'm weak enough to depend totally on you. And what you're doing is not allowing me to become full of myself and become too independent of you. So this flesh is here to keep me broken and remind me of the grace that you've given me. It's a perfect gift. Now, it's not the one you would want, but it's right. So, so then we talk about the life of faith that comes with adoption. Third, adoption appears in the sermon uh, as the basis of the life of faith. That is, the, the life of, of trusting God for one's material needs as one seeks his kingdom and his righteousness. It is needless, and, and J.I. Packer says, I hope to make the, uh, the point that one can live the life of faith without foregoing employment. Some are called to do this, no doubt, but an attempt to attempt it with specific guidance uh, would uh, and, and just doing this blind faith can also be foolhardiness. There's a big difference. He said all Christians are, in fact, called to a life of faith in the sense of following God's will at whatever cost and trusting him for the consequences, but all are tempted sooner or later to put status and security in human terms before loyalty to God's call. And, and you see this a lot of time when somebody starts taking them a faith approach of, well, uh, it, truly living by faith means I don't do anything and I just wait for God to handle it. These are some of these people that won't go seek medical help. Uh, these are these people that um, uh, you keep trying to help them with employment. Uh, and for some reason, even though you found them a job, they keep saying that they're going to have faith in God for the job they want. Uh, we all know this person who hasn't worked in a long time. And you keep offering job opportunities and they keep replying for their waiting on a management job or they want to show you their resume or some sort of uh, degree that they have, and they're waiting on that magical job uh, while their family is not being provided for. J.I. Packer makes it clear that is not the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about. Uh, no, that that's uh, uh, there are some people, and and I and I've read some of their stories in the mission field. That's a different animal there, and they go out and say that God provides everything that they need when they need it, and there's certainly a call like that. But some people take this a call to faith in God to a place that was never intended and be sure uh, that that is not the case in your own life because God may be calling you to a different kind of job that you can use to provide for your family and to humble you into maybe what you consider a lower level job uh, to also get you in the proper place with them. So, uh, but, but here's what Jesus did say, and he did say this in Matthew 6, 25, and this is true, Matthew 6, 25. Do not worry about your life, says the Lord. What you will eat or drink are, are about your body, what you will wear. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, look around. Have you forgotten that God is your father? There's that, there's that adoption again. Have you forgotten whose child you are? Look at the birds in the air. Your heavenly father feeds them. Are they not more valuable than, uh, are you not more valuable than they? So, by the way, some of you need to hear that. 
Jesus himself is giving the pecking order on where animals and human beings rank. Jesus himself just said that human beings are more valuable than the birds and that he provides for the animals, he provides for these birds, he certainly will provide for you because aren't you of more valuable, more value than they? Uh, and then verse 26, if, if God cares for the birds uh, whose father he is not, I know, I, I can already see the pet people and the animal people emailing me, take this up with Jesus. Jesus says God takes care of the birds and he's not even their father. He's their creator, but he's not their father. Don't you think he would take care of his own children because you're more valuable than these birds? You're more valuable than these birds. I know some of that some of that breaks some of your hearts out there, uh, but but nothing wrong with animals, but then they're a blessing, but put them in the right place. Uh, they're not idols, nor are they more valuable than your human children, your human spouse, and your human family, uh, and your church family. The point is this. Jesus is saying that we, as children of God, should not live a life of anxiety and worry over things like what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink. He says, your heavenly Father knows what you need, but seek first, there you go, but seek first your Father's kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you. Okay, so there we go again. So does he provide everything that's needed for every single person? Apparently not. Uh, he says that the people that he's providing for and will always provide for are those that seek first, not my kingdom, if you seek first, not your kingdom, but to seek first your heavenly Father's kingdom. As, as his child through adoption and redemption, we now look to our Father and we say, his will be done, his kingdom first. I'm not building my kingdom to rival my father's kingdom. And if I'm seeking his kingdom first, I want to advance his kingdom. He's in the proper place. He said those people, those true children of God, will never have to worry about having something to wear and something to eat. Now, it may not be lavish, but you're not going to starve. And you're not going to be without shelter. And you're not going to be without clothes. And that comes directly from the word of God. So what else? What, what else does our adoption show us? Um, it, it, it shows us, of course, and, and this is one of these things that, uh, that we talked about when we did the, um, uh, we did, uh, the, the lesson that dealt with the part of Jesus being the substitute. You, you remember us talking about this, and, and, and we unpacked this quite a bit uh, because y'all got to laugh at me trying to say propitiation. Uh, but if you look at adoption in the Word of God in English, you will see that adoption appears five times. You'll see that propitiation appears four times. But adoption through propitiation is a summary of the gospel. So it says, really, if you understand that our adoption came through the fact that Jesus Christ was the substitute, that he, that he, he, he went in and not only paid the debt for our sin, but also averted the wrath of God through, through that Propitiation, we came with Jesus through that only way to the Father and then became adopted as his child. And, um, and, and so what adoption has done is it shows us God's love. I mean, when you look at adoption, it shows us God's love. He adopted us, and the cross is the gift of sonship. And we say sonship, that also includes women who are now his daughters. Uh, we're using that because Christ uh, was his son. But, but if you say, well, how was I adopted by God? How did this happen? Well, it happened through the cross. Uh, that, that was a gift that was given to us. It says, now through the cross, you can become my sons and daughters. Uh, our adoption also shows us the glory of Christian hope. We are his adopted sons and daughters. I mean, when you, when you, and this is what I talked about before in Romans chapter 8. 16 and 17, when he's saying that, that uh, we read this uh, last week, when he's talking about that now we, we have been adopted by God the Father, we now have become co-heirs with Christ. Uh, and also Galatians 4, 7. Listen to what Galatians 4, 7 said. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And you can put daughter there if you're a woman. Uh, and um, since you are born, I mean, since you are now a son or daughter of God, uh, he has also made you one of his heirs. So he, uh, Paul says this in Romans uh, chapter 18, 16, and 17. We talked about that. 
But then he comes back again at Galatia, and he says the same thing. Remember that, that since Christ went to the cross, since he was the substitute, since he was the lamb who was slain, that the wrath of God has been appeased and the, the price for sin has been paid. Now through that, we go into adoption. We become God's sons and God's daughters, and that also makes us an heir. We have we are now heirs to God's kingdom. If you looked at the book of Revelation, we will be sitting there judging, uh, I mean, uh, and, and uh, that is a level that we belong to God. We're, we're his children. Uh, also, another thing about adoption is, is the spirit. It, it gives us the key to understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so what does it mean? Now, look, this, this is the thing that so many people miss, and i got to be really careful with this because I know it's going to upset some people, and I don't mean it to. But um, sometimes when you get into this gift of the Spirit, um, I know that in my, in my own life sometimes this happens. we got to be real careful when we start dealing with the Holy Spirit, and that's the reason why this adoption kind of clarifies that. Sometimes I think we, we don't pay any attention to it at all because we, we, we miss this power that Jesus said was very important. It's good that I go. I will send to you a helper. I'll send to you a comforter. And we've talked about many times in this Bible study that the Holy Spirit was a game changer for the church age. John and Peter uh, went from being cowardly about being disciples of Jesus to being bold and being recognized always as being with Jesus, and they wouldn't compromise him at all. And that difference was the resurrection and the Holy Spirit. However, however, the Holy Spirit is here to help us to grasp this concept of adoption, but it is not some supernatural LSD trip. This is, you know, some some people take some of this and, and, you, and you get weird with it, and some of the things you know that we see out there, and and certainly the gift of tongues is a gift. But you got to go to 1 Corinthians 14 and be sure that you are very well versed on what Paul says about this gift. Uh, there are people that believe that if you can't speak in a prayer language or you can't speak in tongues, that you're some second-class Christian or some second-class child in this adoption. And that is not true. That's incorrect. Um, um, the, the, the Spirit is given to Christians as the spirit of adoption. And in all the Holy Spirit's ministry to Christian, he acts as the spirit of adoption. As such, as such, the Holy Spirit, his task and purpose throughout is to make Christians realize with increasing clarity the meaning of their relationship with God in Christ and to lead them into an ever deeper response to God in this relationship. Paul is pointing out to this truth when he writes, you have received what? The spirit, remember we talked about this in Romans chapter 8, the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. There's, a, there's that intimate relationship. God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to cry again, Abba, Father. That's what I read to you a minute ago in Galatians chapter 4, 6. So the Holy Spirit, it, 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 the main job of the Holy Spirit is to usher us into the complete understanding and confirming and giving us the courage to say, Abba giving us the courage to understand this relationship. It's not some weird LSD trip where you do a bunch of weird stuff and flop around and do all this stuff. It really is a controlled clarity. It is power, no doubt about it. And uh, and there are many places where you know you would act like the Holy Spirit is some cousin that everybody's embarrassed of. It's not that. This Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should be, should when you go to the church, uh, the, the, in the church age, you should see a balanced approach to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what we find in, in denominations many times is denominations begin to pick uh, you know, their favorite part of the Trinity and ignore the other two or pick two and ignore the third. This is one God, three persons, but all three persons are to be understood. And the Holy Spirit and the spirit of adoption is what gives us clarity and confirmation of this wonderful concept. So what else? Fourth, um, and, and uh, um, our adoption shows us the meaning and the motives of gospel holiness. Now, this is a phrase that kind of jumped out. I'm like, gospel holiness? So let's, let's unpack that a little bit. What is gospel holiness? Uh, this is, uh, and J.I. Packer was right when I read this. He's like, this is probably an unfamiliar phrase. It was for me. I, I, that's an unfamiliar phrase to me. This, this was the Puritans. This was... Um, 
This is what the Puritan shorthand, basically they use this word gospel holiness, and what they meant by that is authentic Christian living springing from love and gratitude to God in contrast you know, with, with some of this legal holiness uh, that consisted merely of forms of routines and rituals and outward appearances maintained from some kind of self-regarding motives. Look at me, look at these things I do. Now, this is, we're not against spiritual disciplines. That's not, this, this, this term is not against that. It's just saying this is not about some regiment, some routine, some ritual. Uh, a couple of points about gospel holiness, okay? It is simply this. A consistent living out of our relationship with God into which the gospel brings us. It is a matter of the child of God being true to the type, true to his father, true to his savior, and true to him or herself. It is the expressing of one's adoption in one's life. It is a matter of being a good son or daughter as distinct from being a prodigal or a black sheep in the royal family. This goes back to, again, what we're talking about. This is what John's talking about in 1 John chapter 3. John gets very clear about this. He starts saying, no one born of God keeps on sinning. This is in chapter 3 of 1 John. No one born of God keeps on sinning because uh, that, that's the devil that's been sinning from the beginning, the, the, from the fall. And he says, you should not look into the, the person who claims to be an adopted child through redemption of God the Father, if that person is is a co-heir with God the Son and full of the power of God the Spirit, then God the Father should not see that adopted child behaving in a way that's inconsistent of the claim of, of adoption. It shouldn't be inconsistent with, with, with who your father is. You don't look like your father is, is the one and only living God. You look like you're a child of the devil. And, and John literally uses that phrase. He said, if you're, if you're, he said, anyone who says that God's seed abides in him, anyone who says they're adopted by God the Father will not be living a life of continuous, deliberate, perpetual sin. These people, the children of God don't live this way. We're not talking about stumbles. You've heard me say this many times, and I want you to understand that. Disciples of Jesus and adopted children of God the Father will struggle with sin until we're finally done with this flesh. As long as the flesh is with us, the battle goes on. We will struggle with sin. But what, what John says, what Scripture says, what Jesus says, over and over again, though, it's one thing to struggle with sin. It's another thing to give into it and completely wallow in it. And, and, and the children of God do not continually, deliberately, perpetually sin. They just don't. And he says, as a matter of fact, that's how you'll notice the, the difference in the children of God, adopted children, and the children of the devil. And that's exactly what this gospel holiness means. Don't look like that you are living one thing and claiming another. Second, the adoptive relationship, which displays God's grace, um, uh, provides the motive for this authenticity, uh, this, this looking at this authentic, holy living. Christians know that God predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, and that, that this involves his internal intention that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5. They know that they are moving toward a day when this destiny will be fully and finally realized. First John, I just gave you this in chapter 3. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Remember what First Peter says. First Peter says, before we were children of God, in chapter 1, before we were children of God, we were ignorant. He says, but now you've, you've been adopted, you've been redeemed, so you can no longer claim ignorance. As children of God, we are to be holy in all of our conduct, not some, all of our conduct. Why? Because you're a child of God now, and, and you should be holy because he is holy. Then he quotes Leviticus. So he says, there's a holiness that, that, that is here that doesn't earn uh, salvation, that holiness is the proof of God's grace. It is, it is showing that, that your claim of being a child of God is authentic by, by gospel holiness. And that holiness comes from what? From God himself. Remember John 15, abiding in Jesus. He said, I produce much fruit in you. Fruit of what? Fruit of the Spirit, proving that you're my disciple, which also makes you my father's child. 
Somebody say yes. Is everybody following that? And, and we need to examine our lives, as Paul says in Second Corinthians. He says, examine Examine yourself. See, remember back during our series, The Unsaved Christian? Examine yourself to see if this claim that you make seems to be legitimate. Look at your life. I hope you pass the test. You claim to be a co-heir with Christ. I hope you see that in your life. So what flows from such knowledge? Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. This is, again, the children know that holiness is their father's will for them, and that it is both a means, a condition uh, uh, for us, and it constitutes our happiness here and, and hereafter. And because they love the Father, they actively seek the fulfilling of His benefit, His purpose. You know, paternal discipline when we're parents is exercised through outward pressures and trials and, and helps the process along. Now, the Christian, our eyes... You know, we, we, we look at the knowledge of God, and we see our knowledge of Him and who He is and the way we're behaving. That tells us where we are. But it goes back to what I've said a thousand times about knowing the Word of God and understanding this. I've said it a thousand times because I've lived this way in my past life, which I'm ashamed of as a wretched sinner. It was impossible for me to know what the gospel holiness life looked like. It was impossible for me to know what God expects from me, or it was impossible for me to do what Jesus would do because I didn't know who God was, and I didn't know what Jesus did. You can't, you can't look at your life and compare it to a standard if you've never learned the standard. I mean, you, you have to kind of know what, what that is. Sometimes the chiseling process is painful when we're being disciplined by God. And the discipline is, is irksome. I love that word. I had a friend of mine used to say, well, that really irks me. Uh, J.I. Packer used the words, used that word, irksome. But uh, when the Scripture reminds us, listen, the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son or daughter. Endure hardship as discipline, and when you, in, and when you see this discipline for God, if, if God is disciplining you, understand it's because he loves you, and God is treating you like his child. The writer of Hebrews talks about this quite a bit because I, I've seen it so many times, so many times, so sad, heartbreaking. When I see earthly parents that will not discipline their children, when you see an earthly parent that will not discipline the child, they may tell you that this is some bizarre form of love, but it's not. You know what it is? It's selfish. It's a parent that doesn't love a child enough to do the difficult things, to try to give that child the best shot. You ever been around children that aren't disciplined? Don't you? Don't your heart just break for them? By the way, they're not a pleasure to be around. I mean, you really can't wait till they leave. But there's a side that gets so sad because you think to yourself, these parents are so lazy. These parents uh, like the idea of having children, but they're not willing to get their hands dirty and do the difficult things you have to do if you want that child to truly be loved and you want, look, people tell me all the time, children get around me and coaching and things like that. And, and they'll have a child that, you know, does this or won't do that or whatever. And I never have a problem with them. I, I really don't. You know why? Because I discipline them. I tell them what they can and can't do. And I don't tolerate anybody who goes against what I say on how things go. And you know what those children always do? They thrive in it. They thrive. You know why? You know what they think? This person actually cares about me. This person cares enough to really care how I behave today. This person cares enough to whether, whether I respect their authority or not. Well, you know where I learned that from? I learned that from God. And i got to tell you something. Some of the things I've been through, i got a lot to celebrate. God must love me a lot because he has loved me enough to discipline me, I promise you. And I have been better for it. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews said. No discipline seems pleasant at the time. Amen? It never has. But it can be painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Hurts on the front end, but on, but on the back end, you're better for it. You're better for it. Uh, I, uh, if you're not disciplining your child, you're not treating them the way God wants to treat you. And when God decides to discipline you, know he's doing that because he loves you. Because what do we find in Romans 8, 28? All things work together for good to them that love God. Do all things work 
for good for those who don't love God? No. The Bible's very specific about that. Equally, as as uh, uh, J.I. Packer says, only he can maintain his assurance of sonship against satanic assault uh, when things go wrong. So when you when things go wrong, what Satan is trying to get us to do is to turn against God. Because here's one of the things that um, that Satan will use against you. You need to be ready for this. So he's your father. So you belong to him. Look what he's doing to you. Uh, I'll tell you what. I mean, this is a... Uh, do you want a father that treats you like this? I thought that was one of the things that the Passion of the Christ kind of t- took a look at. I, again, that was them using some creative freedom. But the concept and the, theolog- the, the theology was pretty good uh, when Satan starts trying to show Jesus that he takes care of his son, he wouldn't treat him like this. He wouldn't send his son to the cross. Now, that's not biblical that that took place, but I understand the concept uh, of Satan trying that on us. may not have tried it on Jesus, but he certainly tries it on us. You know, because remember, your faith in a sovereign God, Satan at many times will try to use that against you. So he's in control, yes. So he could have stopped this, yes. Well, he didn't. He must not love you. But if you understand the concept of that, that God allows us to be disciplined by things that humble us, like Paul talks about, things that refine us, things that strengthen us, uh, things that teach us to persevere, uh, things that get us in such an intimate, dependent relationship with God that we truly understand how wonderful he is, all these things are biblical. So what else, uh, as we get ready to, to close out this week, what else does adoption show us? Uh, you know, a lot of uh, evangelicals uh, uh, you know, continue to debate some of this about assurance. What about assurance? You know, this is one of those things. Here we go. We're going to get into the once saved, always saved, fall from grace, uh, uh, chosen before this, and, and that free will. All this stuff about assurance. Uh, well, and this is a debate. But here's one thing that uh, this adoption concept shows us. Uh, it, it shows us that um, what is assurance? Whom, whom does God assure? All believers? Some? None? When he assures, what does this mean? And by, by what means is assurance given? Uh, the, 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 the tangible, the truth of adoption can help us unravel this. If you want to get, you want to wrap your hands around this, this adoption concept that's all over scripture really helps. If God in love has made Christians his children, and if he is perfect as a father, two things would seem to follow that in the nature of the case. First, the family relationship must be an abiding one, lasting forever. Perfect parents do not cast off their children. Christians may act, uh, you know, the, the prodigal, meaning you may have a child and the prodigal son, and, and I've been through this, where a child decides to leave or rejects the faith of the family, uh, but the prodigal father stood there and waited on that child to come back, and what he didn't do when the child repented and said, I have been wrong, I want to return back to my father's house, the prodigal father did not deny him. He, he never stopped being a member of the family, and he was not allowed, like my mother told me, and I'll never forget it, and it was the gospel. When I was living a life of wretched sin and defiance and embarrassing my family, embarrassing the God, embarrassing the God that I claimed to believe in, embarrassing the gospel that I claimed and knew all the concepts of, at least the, the basics of the gospel, claimed I'd been saved. I remember my mother saying this when she looked at the perpetual, continual, deliberate sin in my life. She said, I will always love you, but I won't always approve of you. And right now, I do not approve of you. So even though the potential for my love and approval is there, if you reject us and you do not submit, repent, of the way you're living, you will not be allowed in my house. I I may love you, but that doesn't mean I approve of you. So the potential for my mother's love was never denied me. But in order to properly be into the right relationship with her, my parent, my earthly father, my father, I had to repent and adhere to their standard. And if I didn't, I was not approved. But they didn't deny me that opportunity, and God doesn't either. Second, God will go out of his way to make his children feel his love for them and know their privilege and security as members of his family. Adopted children need assurance that they belong. 
and a perfect parent will not withhold it. Remember, God's a perfect parent. The rest of us are not. And this Romans 8, the classic New Testament passage on assurance, Paul confirmed, confirms both. First, he tells us that those whom God predestined to be conformed to his likeness, to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, those, in other words, whom God eternally resolved to take as sons and daughters in his family alongside his only begotten son, he called justified and glorified. Remember what we're saying. It is absolutely a foregone conclusion that if we repent and we submit to the authority of God and we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior and we abide in him, we become his It is a foregone conclusion. It is a guarantee that we will become like him because Jesus really is that powerful. I know some people take this verse and go, these verses go another way with it. What he's saying is, you will be made like my son because my son really is that powerful. That will happen. And if it's not happening, there's something wrong with your relationship and my son. Then, then you're not a co-heir. So, so Paul says those that, that are al- alongside his only begotten, they're called justified, they're called glorified. Glorified, we note, is in the past tense, though the event itself is still in the future. This shows that, my point I just made, that Paul's mind that this thing is as good as done. It's already, it's been fixed in God's decree. Paul's conf- Paul is confident because he declares what? For I am convinced, underline that, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, who? The children of God from the love of God. This is the redeeming paternal love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans chapter 8. 29 through 30, and then verses 38 and 39. So secondly, Paul says we're glorified because of Jesus. Then Paul tells us that here and now, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. That's in verse 16 in this wonderful chapter of 8. And further, that if we are children, then we are heirs. We've covered this. Verse 17, the statement is inclusive. Though Paul has never met these Romans that he's writing to, stay with this, he felt able to take it for granted that if they truly were disciples of Jesus, they truly were Christians, then they would know the inner witness of the Spirit to their happy status as sons and heirs of God. It was assured. If they truly had this relationship with Christ, it was assured that they should feel assurance that they are co-heirs with Christ and they are children of God and nobody can take them away from God. Now, the the key to all this, though, to get to assurance, is you and I got to look at our lives and see that we see the the evidence of this adoption. That's the key. Because if the evidence is there, and, and, you know, it goes back to the things we've been saying, uh, and I think this needs to be said a lot, Dallas Willard, when we did the... uh, uh, the study here on the spirit of the disciplines, a very difficult study, if you want to go find the archives from that. But, boy, it was a good one. And, uh, and, and what Dallas Willard was saying is, he said, I believe the problem, especially in the Western church, is that the, the, the power and, and the standard of the gospel has been set far too low. Um, you know, it, it goes back to the concept we talked about before, that in, in, the, in the New Testament, uh, the word Christian is only used three times, twice in the book of Acts and then one in First Peter. And in the book of Acts, it's the discussion of this being a derogatory statement. Those that oppose the church made fun of what they said these little messiahs are Christ-like. They were being made fun of by using the term Christian. We get to First Paul, um, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, First Peter chapter uh, four, and then you see First Peter saying, "Let's embrace this this word as." We embrace that they call us Christians, and they're, they're trying to be derogatory. But the thing that I think we've missed is, is, is on this assurance and why there's so much confusion about this adoption and the assurance of adoption is that we've, we've allowed in the Western church people to be called Christians that never were disciples. 
And, and there's no one in the New Testament, if you, as you've heard me say, quoting Dallas Willard, and he's right, there's no one in the New Testament that was, a, that was a Christian, that was called a Christian, that got to be called that, that wasn't already a disciple. And, and what we've done too many times is we have taken, in the Western church, we're not making disciples so that assurance of being a, 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 an adopted child of God doesn't seem to be so readily available and you, you kind of blow in the wind wondering if, you, if you're there because we haven't taken the time to nurture these babies of, of the faith. We get you converted. We just kind of go off and leave you many times. Just like your little baby thrown out in the middle of a field, and you're like, anybody going to nourish me? We're like, oh, you converted. You're in. And then Satan takes that, as Jesus talks about when, in the, uh, the, the story of the sower and these seeds, and what happens is we don't take that person and disciple them into the full assurance and the power because I got news for you. The son of the one and only living God and the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture says over and over again, if that has taken place in your life, you'll know it. And, and you will see full assurance because it is predestined and foreknown that those that are in Christ will be made just like him. And so if you're not, then the relationship with the son is probably not the proper relationship because of the power of him, not because of some legalism or you know, new uh, commitment to self-control, but because of the power of Jesus who makes us co-heirs with him and adopted sons and daughters of the one and only living God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time today. I thank you, Lord, for this concept of adoption is is really mind blowing, but but also reassuring, and much to celebrate today. Uh, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for you. Thank you for what you did for us, and we could not do it for ourselves. Thank you for giving us the ability to be children of God. Unbelievable. Thank you, Lord, and uh, and 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 just forgive us for the times that we take something so wonderful and so powerful for granted, and treat it with such disregard. I pray, Lord, for a vacation next week and uh, folks that will have an opportunity to, uh, to maybe spend some time with their, their families and spend time with you, Lord, dear, and as we approach this time of year where vacations are popping up. I pray if there's anybody, Lord, that needs help today that, the, that you'd have them reach out to me and give me the, the proper words and comments to, to help to give them that same assurance that they too would like to be a child of God through the redemption of Jesus Christ provided only by him. He is the way, he is the truth, he is the life, and no one can become your adopted son or daughter except through him. And we praise his holy name, and we thank you for the grace you've afforded us. In your holy name we pray, amen. Uh, Next week, since uh, we will not have a Bible study, if you'd like to go back uh, and hit some of the archives, man, this is a great opportunity to do that. Uh, Go back to uh, BurgessMinistries.com, click on Listen, maybe go find some Bible studies that you hadn't heard before, or some you'd like to catch up on, or you can stay here on this YouTube channel. If you're watching right now, just click playlist and go back some of those archives. Go through, through some of those archives. I covet your prayers as we spend some time away next week, and I look forward to being back with you two weeks from today. Thanks for being with us.